0: By way of introduction, I want to give a brief review to lead up to where we are now in the book. It's been at least a month since we've been in this book, so we just want to come up to speed again. Uh, From the time of his ascension to heaven and inauguration as the sovereign king of the universe, Jesus began to unfold the plan of God for the ultimate fulfillment and consummation of his redemption plan for mankind and the renewal of this creation. As he opened the first four seals, we saw different judgments unfolding on the earth by way of wars, by way of famines and death and pestilence. The kind of things we see today going on and have been going on for centuries on the earth as we get closer to the end and the return of Christ we saw God's judgments begin to intensify with the six trumpets of warning but sadly after all those judgment warnings we read at the end of chapter 9 these words that the rest of mankind did not repent but continued in their idolatry And rebellion against God. So, all those warning judgments did not produce their intended effect of bringing about repentance in the hearts of people and turning from their sin unto the Lord. But before he, uh, so the only thing that seems left to do for the Lord is to uh, bring about the final judgment and establish. Messiah's eternal righteous kingdom. But before he does this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John interrupts the narrative in the same way that he did, if you recall, between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, he gives us a glimpse of what happens to believers. And he's going to do the same here He's going to answer these two questions that are on the hearts of suffering saints. And the questions are these. One, how long will this suffering go on and evil continue in the world? We look even today, brothers and sisters, and we see evil going on as it were unabated. And we ask the question, how long, Lord? How long will this continue? We hear about suffering saints we are being tormented at the hands of radical Muslims and Hindus and, uh, and other people. And we say, Lord, how long? How long? When will Christ be coming back? Well, this was the cry of the martyrs uh, back in Revelation chapter 6. The second question that he's going to be answering is this, uh, is, What will happen to the believers during those difficult times that are going to come on the earth? So how long will this continue on, and what will happen to believers? So we saw from uh, the letters to the churches back in chapter 2 and 3 that these believers living at the time of John's, when he was writing this, had already experienced isolation by their idolatrous neighbors and unbelieving family members. They have experienced loss of business because uh, of their refusal to take part of sacrificing to idols. Uh, They have suffered imprisonment and uh, some even death for refusing to acknowledge that Caesar is divine Lord. Caesar, they would say, no, no. Jesus is divine Lord. And as such, they, they lost their lives. Uh, John never loses sight of his main purpose for writing the book of Revelation. He's writing as a fellow sufferer to encourage suffering saints. Remember, he's writing, he's banished at, at the island of Patmos as he's writing this. And he says, I'm writing to you as fellow sufferer, as as a fellow Christian going through tribulation. So he's not sitting in his nice ivory palace, as we would say, comfortably sitting in his recliner and writing, you know, believers, let me encourage you a little bit. No, no. He's writing as someone who's actually banished on an island there by himself, and God reveals these things to him as a fellow sufferer. And he's also writing prophetically. He's writing prophetically. So first, it is an epistle. We have to remember the book of of Revelation is is, is first an epistle. He has a greeting and he has a a benediction at the end. He has people that he's writing to. He he calls who it is that he's writing to. But it is also a book of prophecy. uh, To prepare the saints who will be living in the time of the end to know what is to come so they and we can better prepare for it. So as he did in chapter 7, when he showed the believing saints sealed for identification and protection from judgment, and then showed them glorified in the presence of God, he will do the same in chapters 10 and 11. In chapter 10, he will answer the question, how long? Remember that first question, how long? And then in chapter 11, he will ha- he will. Uh, uh, he will talk about what will happen to the saints during the time of tribulation. He does this in two visions, uh, which go together, but we will only be looking at the one vision in chapter 10. So let's read chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. 1 to 4. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seventh thunder sounded. And when the seventh thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Let's ask the Lord's help. Lord, we come uh, dependent upon your Holy Spirit, Lord, to illuminate our minds. We recognize, Lord, without you we could do nothing. These are spiritual words, Lord, and for us to benefit and profit, we need your Spirit to illuminate our minds, to make the right application, Father, that we may go away not just having our heads full of knowledge, but our hearts transformed by your grace and power. We thank you, Father, for your holy word. We ask for your blessing upon our time. And those who don't know you, may you save them today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a mighty angel who comes down from heaven with an important message for John to deliver to the saints, to encourage them in their time of suffering and affliction. The description of this mighty angel fits his message. He is that John is trying, that the the angel is trying to deliver. Because of the description given to him, at least uh, one commentator believes that this is speaking of Jesus. And here's why. Because uh, he's wrapped in a cloud. Jesus comes down from heaven in a cloud when he returns, right? Uh, He has a rainbow over his head, like we saw the throne of God in in chapter 4. There's a rainbow over the throne. Uh, he, uh, he has a face like the sun uh, and feet like pillars of fire, similar to what John saw in Revelation 1 when he saw the living Christ appear to him and had face shining like the sun and legs with pillars of fire. But nowhere in the, in the book of Revelation do we read about Jesus being referred to as an angel. Here, specifically, it says another mighty angel. So he's an angel, right? That's what it's telling us. And then in verse 6, the angel supports his declaration of no more delay by taking an oath in the name of the eternal God. This wouldn't be fitting for the one who is the eternal God to take an oath. So... Uh, Others see parallels between him and the angel Gabriel in Daniel chapter twelve verse seven. We will see that we there is a lot of revelation is found uh, is referencing pulling images and imagery from the Old Testament. So I will be referring to those just for your own information and edification. Now let's look at the way he is described and see how this is meant to contribute to the message of encouragement to his people. First of all, he is sent from heaven by God himself with might, power, and authority to deliver his people. This is a reminder of the Old Testament when God came down, and remember on the mountain as, as Moses saw the, the burning bush, and it wasn't consumed, and God says, I have heard the cry of my people, and I have come to deliver them. God comes, this mighty angel comes sent down from heaven and he is is here to deliver a message to say, I have heard the cry of my people, I'm going to do something about it. And we'll see what that is. The rainbow all over his head brings to mind God's faithfulness to his promise not to flood the earth. And that he continues to be faithful to his promise for protection of his people in these final days. Being wrapped with a cloud and his legs like pillars of fire can be an allusion to God's presence with his people in the wilderness. Remember, there was the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. As God led his people through the wilderness, God is saying, I am here to lead my people. I'm going to bring you to your your desired haven and destination. I'm aware of your sorrows. I'm aware of your troubles. And I will deliver you. I will deliver you. Uh, To demonstrate the enormous size and power of this angel, he plants one foot on the earth and the other foot on the sea. This shows the supremacy of, of God over both land and sea. He calls out with a loud voice like a lion. His voice demands attention. All must hear what he is about to say because his message will affect not just those living on the earth, but the entire universe. He calls out with a loud voice. This angel, his feet on the ground, on the the land, his head up in the heavens, And he shouts so that the entire universe is hearing his voice. Once he spoke, it says the seven thunders of heaven sounded. And it it wasn't just like a a thunderclap, but with an intelligible sound. How do we know that? It says because John began to write what the thunder said. So it must have been some words that were intelligible that he's about to write what the thunder is saying. And he was commanded, John, don't write it, seal it, keep it, concealed. do not reveal it. Whatever that was, we don't know. Close up, Daniel was told on, uh, that he was to close up the seal of the word of the scroll until the time is come. Uh, many commentators see connection here between Psalm 29 where the voice of the Lord is likened to a powerful thunderstorm that strips the forest bare. It, and it says, uh, the voice of the Lord is mentioned seven times in that, in that psalm. Uh, so what did the thunder exactly say? We don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord, and the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. So we will not know unless the Lord reveals that to us. So we've seen a description of the appearance of the mighty angel. Let us now look at his message. What has, uh, And that has a tremendous application for believers throughout the ages. Look with me at verses 5 to 7. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what it is? what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded uh, by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his seven servants, the prophets. The angel takes an oath by the sovereign God of the universe who created the heavens, the earth, and the seas, that once the seventh trumpet is sounded, there will be no more delay. That's the message. He's come here to deliver this message. Remember the question, Lord, how long? There will be no more delay. In chapter 6, He says, wait a little while. When the the souls under the altar asking, how long, Lord? I said, wait a little while until your servants, your fellow servants will be persecuted and martyred and join you at that point. But wait, they were given white robes, told to wait. Now, the angel's message is, there will be no more delay. So in his in his oath he refers to God as the one who lives forever and ever and create and the creator of heaven and earth and everything in them. This is a solid sound edict coming from the God of the universe. You can you can bet your life on it. It will happen just as he said. This is a tremendous encouragement, brethren, to believers to know that we serve a a living God who is outside of space and time and who has sovereign control over everything. Even as Isaiah comforts God's people, if you want to turn with me or just listen, that's fine. Isaiah 40. Listen to these words. Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken me? Uh, liking God, or what likeness compare with me? It is he who sits, verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Verse 23, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness, Have you not known, verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable, verse 29. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Dear saints, how know that your God sits over the circle of the earth, far above all the turmoil, fully in charge and in control, and all the inhabitants of the earth, including that neighbor, that co-worker, that boss, that family member, that government official, that militant Hindu, that militant Muslim, that communist, all those in your life who are making your life miserable and difficult and they, they seem like insurmountable giants to you. Do you know what they are to God? Look with me, verses 15 and 17. Behold, the nations are like drop from the bucket, from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Did you catch that? Drops in the bucket, dust on a scale, nothing and less than nothing. They seem to us like, oh my goodness, they're they're a force to contend with. They're far greater than... They are giants in the land. They are giants. They are strong cities. What are they to our God? Nothing. Nothing and less than nothing. The problem, brethren, is often is when we are in the midst of trials, man becomes great and God becomes small. Isaiah helps us to recalibrate our estimation of him. This helps us to put man and God in the proper perspective. Trial are only an opportunity for us to to see and to prove God's greatness. His nearness, His love, His goodness, and His faithfulness to us. It's only in those periods, brethren. It's only when their back was to to the Red Sea and their face was facing those the whole army of Pharaoh coming against them and they're caught in the middle and they have nowhere to go. It's at that point and and Moses says, stand back, stand back and see what the Lord will do. Whatever situation you're in, brother and sister, stand back and wait on the Lord and see what he's going to do. He is mighty to save. He's a great God. He's the eternal God. Keep your eyes upon Him. Don't let your situation become greater than your God. I say this to myself as well, brethren. These are lessons I had to learn because I was just, as you know, through time of, of wrestling and struggling with the flesh. But praise God, He proves Himself faithful. And here I am standing before you proving the faithfulness of God and His goodness. So, John wants the believers of his day and throughout history to know that our God has power to fulfill all that He has promised in our lives. The one who brought all things into being has power to carry them through to the end. History, from beginning to last, is under his sovereign control. Now you say, Pastor, you have you have sounded this note throughout the book of Revelation. You know, do you need to keep? Amen. We need this note, brethren. That's exactly what John wants his readers. And the Holy Spirit repeats this same note. So if you call me a one-note Charlie, by all means, do it. Because that's what John does and that's what we need. Because, you know... How long did it take for the Israelites to forget what God did for them? Only the next trial. Only the next trial. That's it. Oh, there's no water. Oh, you brought us here to kill us. Come on, God. You could have left us over there unless we, would have, we had graves to die and not have our bodies here strewn on the, in the wilderness. Come on. Only the next trial is all of a sudden you forget what God has done in your life. It, aren't we so fickle? So we need this, brethren. We need, please never get tired of hearing about our awesome God. We need this. He is constantly watching over us and will give us strength in our weakness uh, in the time of our weakness. He will rise, uh, raise us up when we die to dwell with him forever, even as he raised up the Lord Jesus Christ. So be encouraged, saints. Our God is almighty, eternal, and he is trustworthy, and he will fulfill his promises. The Old Testament background to this passage is found in Daniel, again, Daniel twelve seven, where a man clothed in linen who stood above the streams of the water raises up both hands to heaven and swears by the eternal God that after time, time and a half time, after the shattering of the holy people, all these things would be. Finished. This is an answer to the question that was raised by one of the angels in Daniel 12.6 to the man dressed in linen, which the question was, how long? How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? This was similar to the question that was raised by the martyrs, as we said earlier, O sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the angel tells us now, the mighty angel says, that the time has come and there will be no more delay. Now this, of course, is not not speaking from the time of John's writing, uh, but in the chronology of time from the sixth trumpet. So when he says, you know, it won't be long, it won't be any more delay, he said that 2,000 years ago, right? Almost 2,000 years ago. So he's not talking from his time, but remember, this is a a, a revelation, this is a vision, and he's seeing the end of the time, and so he's saying from this time on, from the sixth trumpet on, there won't be very much, it won't be very long. What is this mystery of God that would be fulfilled as was promised to the prophets, as we read earlier? Well, the word translated as, as announced, first of all, uh, announced to the prophet, uh, t- to his servants, is the word euangelizan, euangelizan which comes from eu- eu- uh, euangelizzo, to announce the good news, to announce the good news. The hidden purpose of God was gospeled to the prophets. This, of course, is not speaking of things that are mysterious, but things that are hidden and will be revealed in God's time and that uh, these things would be fulfilled at the sounding of the seventh trumpet in the new testament the word mystery is used of god's redemptive plan conceived in eternity past but now revealed in the gospel of christ and now proclaimed to all but from an eschatological standpoint, uh, here are some of the uses of the word mystery in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, Paul calls the transformation that will happen to believers at Christ's second coming as mystery, as a mystery. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 speaks of a mystery of lawlessness will be revealed at the second coming of the Lord Jesus, at which time he shall put to death the lawless one. In Romans 11.25, Paul tells the Gentiles about this mystery that a partial hardening has happened to the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So these are ways in which we see the word mystery being used in Scripture, both eschatologically and also in reference to God's uh, redeeming uh, plan that he had from all eternity that has been relieved, uh, released, uh, revealed to us in Christ. So that, the mystery that was on a foretold to the prophets is about to be revealed. In subsequent chapter, John is going to reveal to us what is going to happen to the world. And as, as he brings about the consummation of God's redemptive plan. One of the commentators points out that God's heavenly reign and rule over all things is being proclaimed as already done, even while the earth's consummation is still in process. It hasn't happened. But its he's speaking as if it's done already in the past tense. Uh, because in, remember, God doesn't have like we have a timeline. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees the fulfillment of his plan so it's only a matter of time brethren think of it jesus shall indeed have dominion and this world will be transformed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet the dead shall be raised and we shall be changed this mortal body will put on immortality and we shall forever be with the lord this is truth this is in god's estimation it's a done deal Now, of course, we're still in the flesh. We're still fighting sin and all the things that we suffer from. But nonetheless, in God's plan, it's a done deal. It's only a matter of time. And so we are to continually say with the bride, Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, at this point, you would anticipate that, the next verse we would read is that the seventh angel sounded this trumpet to usher in the final judgment and Christ's return to establish his righteous kingdom, right? Well, uh, not yet. We won't hear the seventh trumpet till chapter 11, verse 15. uh, Because John is not finished with his message to the believers as of yet. He told us that God will accomplish the final victory, but we need to know something else. What is that thing, John? There's going to be severe persecution and martyrdom for believers at the time of the end, prior to Christ's second coming, which we'll read about in chapter 11 through chapter 13. He was given this prophecy in the form of a little scroll. Remember the, this this. Huge, mighty angel had this little scroll in his hand and he holds it out. Uh, let's read about that, verses 8 to 11. Then the voice that I heard from the heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the, on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat and eat it It will make your stomach bitter, but your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I had eaten it, my, excuse me, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That voice from heaven that. Uh, told him to seal up the utterance of the seven thunders. now tells him to go to the angel and to take the scroll uh, that is in his hand and that uh, as he took it, the angel told him, eat it, and that as he ate it, it was sweet as honey to his mouth, bitter in his stomach. This is in contrast, brethren, uh, to the seven seven seals that Christ received which we looked at beginning in chapter 6. This scroll in the hand of the angel is laid open because God's final judgment is about to unfold. Daniel was told to seal up the vision until the time has come. Now the time has come for the mysteries that were told to the prophets to be revealed. God's final judgment is about to take place with Christ the judge returning on the cloud of glory to gather his elect and to judge the nations. The time is at hand. The scroll is little because most of the larger scroll has already been unfolded. Just as a side note, uh, three times we read the angel's foot was one foot was on the sea, another foot was on the earth. This is for emphasis that this angel has God has sovereign control over all things. The Old Testament reference to this passage is found in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8, uh, where a scroll was spread open before Ezekiel, which had writings on the front and the back, words of lamentation and mourning, he tells us, and woe uh, for the rebellious house of Israel. He was to deliver this message to Israel as a nation that was in rebellion against God. He was commanded to eat the scroll and go and to speak the content of that scroll um, to this rebellious house of Israel. And upon eating it, the same thing, it was sweet to his mouth. Now here, John was also going to be prophesying, but not just to the house of Israel. He's prophesying to peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Just a couple of points of application. Um, First, we notice that God's message was to be internalized by the prophet. The word to eat there is katastio, katastio, to eat up till it is finished, to devour, to devour. He wasn't just to digest the message mentally, but it it must become a part of him, part of his conviction. You know, talk about visceral, something you feel down deep in your gut. So he was to take it, Eat it, digest it, and let it become a part of him. That's what it's, give him conviction as a prophet. He must appropriate this message for himself before he can deliver to uh, deliver it to others. It must grip him. Everyone who communicates the word of God knows the absolute importance of first internalizing it and re, and ruminating and thinking deeply about it about its message, until it becomes a part of us. Until it becomes a part of us. We do this as pastors when we prepare our messages so that we're not just like a mailman. You know, the mailman puts a, 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 a letter in your, in your... He has no clue and he doesn't care what's in it. It could be, a, a, you know, some uncle who died or whatever. He cares not little about that. He's just delivering mail. Last thing we want, brethren, one of the scariest thing is that we become professional sermon deliverers. Professional clerks, just delivering sermons and delivering mail. That's the last thing we want. It must first, we need, we need to internalize it. It's got to be a part of us. We cannot deliver the word of God without feeling. We can't just stand here and just kind of just you know, just speak, monotone, nothing, no movement, just thus says the Lord and just that. Well, I, you would have to tie my hands behind my back, first of all, to be able to do that. I can't, but, you know, uh, so we, we seek to, to first let it do its work on us. We need to internalize it. It's got to affect us. Before I could say, thus says the Lord, I must say, where do I stand with thus says the Lord? My life has to be in obedience to what says. So I need to repent when I see what I see. You know, when I was sharing with brethren earlier, you know, I read this part and I'm like, okay, what's, you know, what, what is what is it? He takes this little scroll, he eats it. Okay, it's bitter. What does that mean? It's all figurative. I, you know, and then by the time I got done, I'm thinking, I got way too much material. I need, Maybe I should make this two sermons, right? So, as you get into it, hours and days of study and, 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 and meditation, you, st- you start seeing the Holy Spirit shows you things in there and you say, okay, there's a message here that the people need to hear. And so we need to have it, uh, we need to have it do its work on us. So this same thing applies to sharing the gospel, brethren. It ought to grip us and excite us. And stir our hearts to share it with others. When we become ho-hum about the gospel, that's an indication that we are spiritually not in a good place. Right? We ought to, oh, the, the gospel ought to grip us and, and cause us to be in a sense of awe. And I can't just keep this to myself. I need to tell it. I need to speak it. I need to share it. But we would never, brethren, be, we should never become ho-hum about the gospel. A second thing we learn from John's experience when he ate the scroll is that we read that it was sweet as honey to his mouth, but it made his stomach bitter. It is bitter because it will involve further judgment on the nations and persecution to the church. But it is sweet because these last uh, set of judgments will usher in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the bittersweet this message of, of this uh, of this uh, uh, letter, uh, the word was sweet as honey. Reminds us of the psalmist, Psalm one nineteen, verse one o three. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, Your word was found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord. God of hosts the truth and promises of the gospel give us great joy and comfort to know the joy that my sins are forgiven I am justified before a holy God they am adopted into God's family and dwelt by the spirit I have hope of the resurrection and a glorious future in heaven those things brethren are joy and a delight to our hearts are they not they are sweet as honey to our taste. But there's another part of the gospel that is difficult to digest, is there not? And that is self-denial, daily cross-bearing, walking in the narrow way that leads to life, and bitterness of persecution for the sake of the gospel, the rejection of family and friends who reject the gospel, sorrow over lost loved ones, sorrow over indwelling sin. And as believers, every one of us have experienced those things. Have we not? That is not easy to digest. That is difficult. You don't go around with, you know, happy clappy when you go through those difficult times. Just talk to some of the parents who have children who are wayward. It's, it's heartbreaking. You want to see them cry? Just mention that. It's very heart-wrenching. But be of good courage, brethren, because we are in good company with the prophets and those who have gone before us. Ezekiel was to deliver a very hard message. It wasn't easy. Uh, but yet, God was with them. God told them, don't fear their faces. Oh, they're going to reject you, he said. Don't fear their faces. Bring the message. Be a faithful servant. John was going to deliver a hard message. Remember, what he's going to say the, to the nations isn't going to be easy. Just read about what happens to Babylon. Read about what happens to the to the harlot on that, on that beast. That's not going to be an easy message. Everyone is going to be affected. The merchants and, the, and the, uh, uh, those who travel on the sea and every person, every the high and the low, everybody's going to be affected by this message. But also, the believers are going to be affected. As you will tell us in chapter 11, there's going to be some very, very severe persecution and martyrdom. So it's, it's a difficult message, and, uh, but yet the Lord tells us. So I want to say we're in good company. And the Lord says, I have said these things to you that, you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So that's the encouragement, brethren, that we are to have is in the midst of our difficulties, we will know peace. The world, tribulation, but in Christ, peace. And know that he has overcome. So what was the message of the little scroll? Verse 11 tells us, And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In chapter 1, John was called and commissioned to write the book of Revelation, which contained a message for the church. Here, he's uh, being recommissioned to bring a prophetic word to the nations. Uh, so from verse, chap- from verse 11, we can surmise that the little scroll contained prophecies concerning nations and kingdoms. This formula describing the people of the world as peoples, nations, languages, kings, or tribes mention- appears seven times in the book of Revelation. Now as we progress into the letter, we will see Uh, God will be bringing judgments upon the nations of this world described by Babylon and the harlot uh, sitting on the beast uh, and so forth. But thankfully, brethren, that the message in the scroll is not just about doom and judgment, uh, but also a hope and a worldwide redemption of God's people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. So we can rejoice in that. Let's consider A couple of points of application as we close. One, the book of Revelation helps us know how to process current events. The book of Revelation helps us know how to process current events. Though the book, though it is, uh, the Lord has, through the book I should say, the Lord has revealed uh, to us the mystery of what is to come on the earth and the future of the people of God. We don't need to turn to human speculation or opinions of men. If if you've read the news in the last couple of weeks or seen it, you would have read about an earthquake that happened in Morocco killing about 3,000 people. You would have also read or heard about a dam that broke in Libya after some torrential rains that killed 11,000 people. You would have heard about the alliance of the BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, uh, which is an acronym for the nations that are being represented. This is a, 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 an alliance or a coalition of these, uh, what's called Global South, Global South Nations. Um, and uh, how that there are other key nations that are looking to join those, the, the BRICS uh, alliance. And, and how that China is brokering a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, who have been rival enemies for a long time, and also about how the U.S. is trying to broker a deal normalizing relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. You would have heard about all these within the last two to three weeks. Uh, Of course, you would also hear about the uh, inflation in our country and the progressive left pushing their agenda in different sectors of our society. How are we as believers to process all this news, whether it's national or global? Well, I think we process them in one of three ways. One, become apprehensive, wondering what is going to happen, what is this going to mean for the future of the U.S., for your job, for your retirement, and for your kids. That's one way to face those, that, the news. Two, a second group of Christians would process this by pulling out their prophecy charts and try to see who is the new Antichrist figure that is emerging, who are the Gog and the Magogs, and who is Israel making an alliance with. And they will try to fit this into their eschatological view as other Christians have done for centuries. That's another one. That's a second one. A third, a third group of Christians would process it this way. They will trust God for their future, knowing that he's accomplishing his purposes in the earth, and they will continue to gather with the saints, serve the Lord with their gifts and talents, and seek to advance the kingdom of God. Which group are you in? Jesus gives us an illustration in Luke chapter 12 exactly to this point. There's a a servant who's been committed. He's given tasks to do. His master goes away. He doesn't tell him when he's coming back. And he gives him certain tasks to do. And he says, now you do this and I'm going away and I'm going to come back. The master comes back at an hour the servant was not expecting. What does he find the the servant to do? anxiously waiting and kind of figuring out, okay, he left this time, okay, he's coming back. If he comes from this direction, oh, he may be coming. Well, this is such and such happened around in that time. No, no. His lamp is burning, his loin is girded, and he's doing exactly what his master said. Jesus says, blessed is that servant that the master himself will reward him by serving him. Brethren, I don't know about you, but I want to be that servant. Right? I want to be that servant. The lesson Jesus draws for, from the parable here is that don't fret about the future. Instead, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamp burning and keep doing what your master told you to do. And like that faithful servant, when your master returns, he will reward you for your faithfulness. Now, a second point of application. We're to receive or, and preach and or preach both the sweet and bitter parts of Scripture. Receive and preach both the bitter and, and uh, sweet parts of Scripture. The gospel, as I said, brethren, is indeed good news. It is amazing news that the God of the universe has made a way for us to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. This is incredible. Everyone wants to hear this part of the gospel. God loves you and wants you to go to heaven. I think anybody who believes in, in some form of an afterlife wants heaven. I don't think they want to go to hell. No one has said, nah, well, I, actually I did hear somebody who says I want to go to hell. One of my cousins who said that. Uh, When I went, he was on his dying bed, literally, as I approached him. And he says, uh, I'm going to go where Hitler and Miss Mussolini are and have a party there. It's like, it's not going to be a party. So that's his delusion, right? Thinking that hell is a place that he can enjoy. Because he really did believe that there was such a thing. Uh, But most people who believe that there is an afterlife would say to you, yeah, I want to go to heaven, I don't want to go to hell, whatever that looks like. Uh, the tendency when we share the gospel is to focus on that and to leave out the bitter or difficult part, to, uh, namely sin, repentance, eternal wrath, the cost of discipleship, the necessity uh, that necessitates us dying to self, cross-bearing. But if we leave out that part, we are preaching half a gospel. We are just telling people what they want to hear. And that is misleading because there is no crown without a cross. There is no crown without a cross. The idea that God wants you to have your best life now doesn't exist in the Bible. That's another gospel. And you know what Paul said about that? To preach another gospel, whether I or an angel from heaven, let him be a, 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 anathema, let him be a curse. He says, for I am not seeking the approval of man, verse 10, chapter one of Galatians. I'm not seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We live in a day where people only want to hear positive, affirmative messages, affirming messages. So if you want people to join your church, you've got to tell them what they want to hear. The question is, whose approval do you want? Man's or God's? Praise God, brethren, that many of you drive a distance to come here. Why? Because you want the truth. That's why. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4, it says, he tells Timothy, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What? Rebuke? Really? Exhort? Reprove? Man, those sound like hard words. That, that's hate speech, bro. You don't, you don't talk like that. You're going to stand over here and start reproving and exhorting and, and correcting? That's what he told them to do. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from the listening to the truth and wander off into myths." Nothing new under the sun. Listen to the words that Isaiah was told. Here's, here's uh, in the day of Isaiah. He's what the people w- wanted from to hear from prophets. Isaiah 30, verse 9. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Why, who say to the seers or to the prophet, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. No, 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 no. Don't give us that hellfire and brimstone and a Holy God stuff. No, just give us the oh, God is so love, He's so patient. Oh, He wants you so bad. You're going to make heaven a great place because you are so great. In the last days, brethren, I mean, we're living, they won't endure sound doctrine. They will want teachers that tell them smooth things. Uh, and so, uh, like, God wants you to have your best life now. You know, who doesn't want to ha- hear that? May the Lord help us to remain faithful to Him, even when our message is not popular. Thirdly, we need to take time daily to assimilate God's Word. Believer, you are, uh, are you in the habit of daily reading and meditating on God's Word? Feeding your soul on this manna from heaven. If not, let me encourage you to begin now. Get some kind of a reading plan and set time aside daily to to hear from God. This, this, This Bible, brethren, is a letter from God. Don't leave it unopened. And every day, He has a message for you in it. For you specifically. As you open it, you'll never regret it. You'll find and learn something new. And you say, Lord teach me what would you have for me to do you see if you just eat we heard recently a, a, a brother a pastor mentioned if you eat one meal a uh, week what's going to happen to you you may live not for long you're going to be very weak for sure you're going to be emaciated you can't live physically on one meal a week well we can't you can't live on on just this teaching from sunday to sunday you need to be in the Word, strong Christians all throughout the centuries, brethren, have been men and women of faith who read their Bible. I read a a, a a brief biography about about Hudson Taylor, and he would get up. This is while he was on the mission field. He his his mission was to establish a mission station in every province in China. So he would be traveling across China, inland China, establish the inland China mission, and he would wake up every night 2 to 4 because that's the only time he had available to him because the rest of the time he's busy going, traveling, preaching, teaching, so on. 2 to 4 says he read the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, 50 times in his lifetime while traveling and doing. And he established 13 mission stations So many churches, thousands of people got converted. So he led a very busy life, and yet he took the time to be in the Word every day. Is it any wonder that he was the man that he was, that God used him greatly? So in the same way, brethren, if we really want God to use us, we need to be daily in the Word. James tells us, don't be hearers, be doers. He said, don't be like that man who looks at a mirror, and then all he sees is the external and then walks away unchanged. The Word of God is a mirror that looks into our souls. It exposes us what's inside of us, not what's on the outside, what people see. They, it shows us what we are on the inside, what God sees. And so we let, if we let the Word of God do its work in us, we will be transformed inside out, Daily. So we need to internalize it. We need to assimilate it daily. Um, it's, and it's like a mirror that looks into our souls. A surface reading of the word is like, uh, like that man looking at his picture in the mirror. But when you sit to meditate and let it do its work on you, that you examine your heart, you will see where you need to change and seek his help to change, uh, to change you. Uh, let me just close with this final application, and is this. For those of you who don't know the Lord, you heard, you heard the message. You heard the message of the little scroll. You've heard the gospel. Uh, many times you heard, uh, you heard the gospel about the Savior, but you have not yet received the gospel. Why? Because you don't want the bitter part of it. You don't want to submit. You don't want to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want to give your, up your auto- autonomy of running your life your own way, of doing what you want to do. Because you recognize when you come to Jesus, He takes charge. You are giving control over to Him. You don't sit in the driver's seat next to Him and, and seek to turn this way and turn the wheel that way. No, you sit in the trunk. And you let him, you let him take over. Lord Jesus, I am yours. You lead in my life as you see fit. I have no say in this, Lord. You're in control. This is what the Lord Jesus calls for each one of us. Have you done that? But friends, what's the other option? If you will not accept Jesus as Lord now, you will face him as judge later. You don't want that. You don't want that. Because as we see what's going to happen to the wicked, it is not pleasant. Cast into the lake of fire for all eternity and the, and the smoke of their torment will arise forever and ever. This is no fairy tales. This is truth. This is God's word. Please turn to the Lord today that you may be saved. Just so you know. Christ, the sinless ones, the sinless Son of God, came from heaven, took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died in our place on the cross so that He may pay the punishment that our sins deserve. If you repent and receive Him today as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. You have that promise from the Lord. Come to Him today without delay.